Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. Hey, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. How are you? I have on the program today Marlo Granados. Her debut novel, Happy Hour, is available now from Verso Books. Marlo Granados is a writer and a filmmaker and a, and a host or a co-host of a podcast called The Mean Reds. It's dedicated to women-led films. She also writes an advice column for The Baffler called Designs for Living. It's possible that you've heard of Happy Hour, her debut, which has been generating a lot of buzz. There's a big profile of her in New York Magazine. And I was delighted to meet her and talk with her and very charmed by this book. Today's episode is brought to you by Custom House, publisher of Burnt Coat, the new novel by Sarah Hall, her first novel in six years. Sarah Hall has twice been nominated for the Man Booker Award. And with Burnt Coat, she has written an incredibly timely novel, not only about the spread of a deadly virus, but also a novel that deals with immigration and the role of women in the art world. That's Burnt Coat, the new novel by Sarah Hall, available from Custom House Books, an imprint of Harper Collins. The Other People podcast is offered freely. This is a listener-supported show. The entire archive of this show is available for free. That's more than 700 episodes and counting. If you like this program, if you listen a lot, if you get something from it, I hope you'll consider supporting it over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com 
slash other PPL pod. You can support the show for as little as $1 a month. There are different tiers, different levels. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. This podcast also has its own YouTube channel. Search for it by name over at YouTube, Other PPL. The entire archive is available on YouTube. Check out the YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free. All right, so another Sunday episode. I think I'm going to do a lot of Sunday episodes as I round out the year. My guest today, again, is Marlo Granados. Her debut novel, Happy Hour, is available now from Verso Books. And it's got a lot of style, this book. And it has a certain attitude to it that wins you over. I found myself rooting for the protagonists and... I found myself a little bit wistful, too, as I think about the world that we have created for young people in particular. I don't know. Maybe I took it too hard, but (laughs) that's how it made me feel. And so it, it made the plight of the heroines in this book that much more meaningful and, uh, you know, sympathetic. Again, the novel is called Happy Hour, and I'm very pleased to get to introduce you to today's guest. Here she is, folks. This is Marlo Granados. So I started writing it when I was in my early 20s, and then I finished writing it when I was like 25. And what happened was my agent had brought it out like tried pitching it in 2017 no one wanted it (laughs) I had to deal with you know the the feelings of that and I was like I'm gonna give up I'm writing I don't really care anymore what has writing ever done for me don't really care (laughs) um and I was kind of um disenchanted by the whole process and it made me feel very I don't know. I had to, I had to like kind of keep, keep living my life. So I got a bunch of, you know, I went to bad relationships. I did a lot of things. I, I probably, uh, spent a lot of money buying clothes. <laughs> I don't know. I was going through a whole, um, it was a transitional period. And then one day I had crashed. Everyone always says that I crashed this new year's Eve party. It's not true. I was, I was on the list for, like I was the plus one for two different people or maybe even three. And everyone was like asking, when is Marlo getting here? When's Marlo? And the host of the party was like, who is that? Like, I've never heard of this person. Why is she coming to my party? And eventually what happened is that the the host of the party is named Emily Keeler. And what happened was the next day, I guess in her mind, she remembered me because the next day I had to message her because I thought I left my elbow length opera gloves at her house. 
and I was like, have you found these light pink opera gloves? They have a pearl button. And she was like, honestly, like, this is, who is this person? Um, and so like months later, I guess we, we, I had invited her to a small, um, event and, um, she comes to me and she's like, oh, like I've heard from around that you're a writer. Um, do you have anything for me to read? And I was thinking that she was just some, like, another writer because you know I've had that situation where writers will be like oh like I would love to read your stuff and like I'll let you know how I feel about it and I was like "Mm, whatever it's fine I can send it to something so I said to her I was like I have this manuscript but I you know like you don't have to read the whole thing it's no big deal but this is the only thing that I have at the moment that I could send you so um she ends up reading it and uh, you know basically as it as it comes to light is that she's actually a, an editor and she was joining flying books, which is my Canadian publisher um, in their first venture into becoming like an imprint. So that kind of just led the whole situation to then being uh, their first novel that they published. And so in Canada, happy hour came out a year ago and then from there, from a random also circumstance with Verso, um, my editor there, Keen McCourt, he's, um, he had actually heard of me years ago and I didn't, he only, he revealed this to me like very quietly when we first had a meeting and I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, some girl just said that her friend has this manuscript and I had always wondered. And then actually like years ago, I had emailed your agent asking to see it, but my agent was like, why you you work at verso and the verso didn't have like a fiction imprint at that time so um it's all been very coincidental almost it almost seems like a mistake because i truly had shelved happy hour like i'd shelved it i just didn't even think of it my agent told me that to in order to maybe sell happy hour i would have to write a second novel and sell that one first in order to sell what is now happy hour (laughs) okay so i want to talk about this because Okay. <laughs> I I've been through similar gauntlets, you know, as a writer with my mm-hmm. book out on submission, you know, I think anybody who's done this long enough has gotten rejections and all the rest, but mm-hmm. it cons- I'm consistently astonished that books of such high quality would have such a hard time finding champions in publishing. And it's common. And so I think it's important mm-hmm. for people listening, especially for people who might have experienced rejection or who might be feeling disillusioned, but who like quietly believe in their work. Like it's not you is what I want to say. Yeah, absolutely. I honestly think that it's for the time that it originally went out, because even to be honest, um, even the publication of trying to get it published even more recently for my Canadian publisher to then sell the rights, um, in like the US and the UK was also kind of a a difficult process as well. So I think it's, it is kind of funny. And like me and my agent will, will like email each other. Cause I, I I don't even feel like it's my own. Like I feel almost happier for my agent (laughs) because she stuck out with me since I was like really young. Like I've known her since I was like 23. Um, and, you know, like I was so scared for so long that she was going to kick me off the roster because I didn't, hadn't sold anything. Um, so I'm always like so happy for her because I'm like, oh, like I must, she must feel so vindicated. And I'm like, I feel vindicated too in some ways, but it's almost like a team effort and a team vindication that we're like, like thumbing our noses at, um, at you know, the, the big houses or something. I don't know. <laughs> I understand that feeling. I understand that feeling of being like happy for your agent because 
especially when things aren't going your way, they really are outside of like maybe close family and friends, your only real champions. And certainly your only champions in the business. And especially when an agent sticks with you, like I have the same kind of thing with my agent. Like I feel such affection for her and we've become friends through the years, but I don't know. In those lonely times, they're all you got. <laughs> yeah, no, she's definitely had to weather a bunch of manic emails for me at random times, like me calling her office, like being like so stressed out. It's all been an interesting development for me because obviously when you have a project that you kind of have, I know I've grown older in the whole process. Like this has been, this book has taken me through my twenties in a certain way. And I feel as though it has been the reception is so interesting to me and also in, in a way I feel a little bit more apart from it just because I you know I finished writing it so long ago and now I'm kind of like a not so different but you know I'm, I'm older and dealing with this the kind of like press and all these situations kind of it is like funny to me because again like when you when I was you know, like a few years ago, like I had literally been like, it's fine. It I don't really care. It's fine. I have to give it up. It's, it's not like right. And it's not for right now. And like, and it is true. I think that you have to wait a little bit like for the correct timing. And that was my main gripe with the publishing world and anything like, cause everything takes so much time. Like I have worked in um, fashion and I was doing a lot of photography for work before and, you know, we do shoots and then they're like, they're already out like immediately. And you have, you kind of have this like running, um, this cycle that is like constantly going and going. And so having to, you know, scale back and, and be patient was quite a challenge for me. You talk about timing, like market timing, who knows how to work those angles. That's something that's kind of, it uh, comes down to serendipity. You know, when mm -hmm. I think about that, when I think about books that really break out, it's like that magical fairy dust, you know, it's like a book that channels something that the culture is just so ready for at that particular mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And it seems to have a kind of energy working for it that is outside of it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I, I was prepping for this call and reading about how when the book was first on submission and you weren't finding any luck, that a lot of people were looking for a different kind of story yes. related to the 
like the feminist aspects of the of the novel. Is that right? Like they were. It's kind of well, like at the Me Too uh, mm-hmm. moment. I think it was more just like it. People wanted stories about how hard it was to be a woman, and I think that of course there's always going to be like space for that. But for me, like that really wasn't the point of my novel. Like I was more interested in, in young women finding pleasure and having fun and, and that kind of pursuit. But I think that the, at the, that time the market was very much like, you know, we have to talk about these, these like trauma narratives or, or everything, you know, like the, these things that are that people, women have to like get over and these narrative arcs that I feel like, you know, sometimes for me, like, I think that like, when you push weight onto something because of using it as a device, it, it can not be as legitimate as, you know, like how your, your actual lived experiences can be. So I was never going to do that. And I was never going to like, you know, like really lean in on or like make obvious, like certain, like, I would say like how I'm a woman of color. I was, I was, I'm never like that anyways. I feel like in the, it's all, my politics and all these things are in the text, but if you have to like kind of be of that mind to, to notice it. Right. So I didn't want to, I feel like that was another thing is that people really wanted like an obvious moral tale (laughs) and like this kind of, and you know, my whole purpose for writing this novel was because I didn't want these young women to be punished and I didn't want them to have to, be forced to learn something. I wanted them to be able to make decisions on their own. And because of that, then they're able to, there's a lot more, there's a lot more freedom because already like the, the terms that they have to live are quite precarious. And I don't know why I'd want them to be put under even more, even more terrible things to happen. Like they already have like $5. I don't know. Like that's, that's quite enough. (laughs) Right. Well, I, I was thinking about the book after I finished it. And thinking about like how it's effective and why it's effective, and maybe to a degree that exceeds most books I've read recently, or most books I've read, I think that what is not in the book, and you just described it, but I think what's not in the book is so essential to why it works. And mm-hmm. I, I have to add the caveat that the, these things, like you said, they're embedded, they're not really like overt. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to sort of know to know. Other times mm-hmm. you allude to them briefly, but you don't make it the mm-hmm. point of the story mm-hmm. or the point of these girls' lives. Mm-hmm. But as a reader, I felt it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope it's not giving away too much to say that, you know, the protagonist, Isa, is that the correct pronunciation? Yes. Okay. Isa, yeah. So Isa and then Gala, uh, it's like these two girls who are friends, young, uh, you know, early 20s in Manhattan like you say, $5 to their name, basically, and like (laughs) trying to live the glamorous life and have fun Mm -hmm. over the course of a summer. But there's real grief in them. Mm -hmm. And there's real heartache and dark history, like there is for Mm -hmm. all people. But you know, you you touch upon it. And it makes I think, their pursuit of pleasure poignant. And it's essential, because if you didn't have, as a reader, some awareness of that sort of subsurface stuff, Mm-hmm. then I, I think some of the fun wouldn't have meant so much to the reader, yes. if that makes sense. No, I I agree. I think that that was, I wanted to be able to, 
give the reader some credit, you know, like I don't feel the need to like force them into thinking something or some way. Like I think that, you know, if you have, you know, if you observed closely that there are several different threads running through the novel that I think, you know, give that kind of weight to the very stylistic and light kind of narrative. So if you were looking for something that was like a quick and fun read, like you could read it like that, like that as well. But then if you return to it in different ways, you know, there's certain things about class or certain things about, you know, capitalism, there's, there's all kinds of different threads. You know, I'm interested in like, putting an Easter eggs into, into the work. And you're absolutely right. And it's so funny because I always talk about that. Like if you're in the know, you're in the know. And that's kind of how even like being a party girl works anyways. Like if you know where the party is, like that's what you do. But like, if you don't, like you're never going to get there. It's just like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of the, um, of philosophy and it's also like I always like to talk about how the book is written like a wink like you know like you have to kind of know that there's like a mischievous side and that was kind of what was interesting to me I did see I've been trying not to read (laughs) reviews like I do read some of them but um you know I an interesting thing that I've noticed is that people often think that it's quite um like sanitized or like chased and and that's really interesting to me because you know it's really like not if you if you like understand the winking style and you know and that's kind of also like a it harkens back to like my interest in you know the golden age of hollywood and these kinds of ways that we that you know in cinema like and in novels too like there was a way that you could allude to something without like having to spell it out. Yeah, I, I felt that. I felt like because there's not a lot of like overt sex in the book, mm-hmm. even though these are young, like young, attractive people like going out and mm-hmm. drinking a lot. And like usually when young, attractive people go out drinking, they have sex. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. So you, you do. I think you do as a no, as a reader, you notice that. But I sort of appreciated it. And I got like the anachronistic sensibility, not only through some illusions but also through the voice of Issa. Issa mm-hmm. talks in an anachronistic, like mid-Atlantic mm-hmm. way that's kind of mm-hmm. affected. And um, I, I found it like charming and funny. It took me a second to catch on, but once I got into the voice of her and understood like her whole angle, um, I was charmed by it. And I think there is like a lineage that you're working here. I think you you give a shout out to like Jean Rhys and Anita Luce, and I could mm-hmm. be missing somebody, but you know, you're standing on the shoulders of certain kinds of female writers and creators throughout history. And I don't know, I kind of read it in that context. Oh, absolutely. I think that like, that was also really important to me. And even I think it's also important to the characters. They're constantly trying to work themselves into a history to, to give, give, be rooted in some way. And I think that if you don't have that in your family life or you have, you know, or in your relationships with people, a lot of the times you kind of look to put yourself into a tradition. And I think that like, that's what these girls are doing as well. Like they, they don't really like, not that they don't get along with their contemporaries, but they, they kind of have this, um, this, way of seeing the world that is different from other people and a little bit more optimistic and a little bit more um it's not even really naive because I think that it's like they're they act like very faux naif in a way but um 
it's kind of this this openness and this willingness to invite people in that I think in contrast to a lot of the milieus that they're working around in New York is really opposite because I feel like people in New York always want to like um they kind of like uh, you know like it's a cold shoulder type of place like I think but these girls are like absolutely not I will and even when people do that they just don't accept it anyways and I think that's it's funny and I and I I've always gotten a kick out of you know being mischievous and like that's like it's I think like that's kind of like what I, my friends would always say is a kind of like a very defining trait even when I was like very young so I wanted to have that in these characters where you feel like they're really shouldn't be there <laughs> like and they're they love that they revel in it they've got chutzpah yeah <laughs> and and they're also stateless or not like stateless but you know they're out of country and mm-hmm. in new york they don't have papers to work mm-hmm. you know they don't have like a working visa or whatever you need to to mm-hmm. find gainful employment so they're hustling always to make yes. ends meet like posing for artists and mm-hmm. uh working what at like a uh, flea market is that what it is like yeah. in brooklyn or whatever <laughs> like, yeah, yeah yeah on the weekends on the weekends market stall <laughs> so i think when you talk about you know maybe feeling a little bit like uh, rootless you know they're out of their home countries gala is what a child of the bosnian war mm-hmm. and then isa is originally i think from canada am i misremembering this or well or can... i mean like it's it's like a joke for me like i i put like little things in there that would allude to that <laughs> but okay. you know because I'm Canadian so like that and that made sense to me is to have like a to be like because I feel like ca- Canadians are it's an interesting situation because it's like familiar it's a familiar kind of North American but like it's not like American it's like the it's like a I don't know. I, it's hard to explain, but it's like, it's not like when people are talking like someone who's British, it's just like, it look it's familiar, but different. And it's interesting that people, I've, I've always found that it's funny that a lot of my American friends don't understand that I can't work in America. <laughs> but anyways, I cut you off. Continue. No, Sorry. no, no. I, I, I mean, I always, I, I have such affection for Canada. I feel like it's our sane neighbor to the North. I, there's the old <laughs> saying that like living in Canada is like, increasingly like living in an apartment above a meth lab but you know we talk about the book and about these young girls um these characters you know isa and gala and how they're they're trying to integrate into a country that's not their own like yeah there's Mm -hmm. a cultural familiarity and like shared cultural values between canada and the united states and i think american culture has been exported so much that i think a lot of Mm -hmm. people have kind of a fluency in it but there's also i think a sense that I had, you know, you talked a little bit about like, you know, this kind of rooted, unrooted feeling or not having a family, like a deeply sensed, deeply sensed feeling of rootedness within one's family or within one's mm-hmm. home country or whatever it would be. Mm-hmm. But I sense in these young girls that they had been voracious and astute consumers of culture mm-hmm. uh, and maybe American culture in particular. And had a real fluency with it and we're using it to sort of find their way. Like, Mm -hmm. is is that a mischaracterization? Do you know what I'm getting at? Like it, it, I felt like they had really absorbed lessons from the culture, some of which might not be the greatest. And I think there's a knowingness in the book about that. You know, it's kind of like they're Mm -hmm. in it and of it and they're operating in New York and going to all these parties and mingling with all these people. But I think that even though you're not overt about it, there is an implied critique. Yes. 
I think that, you know, that they have to do all these like little random jobs all the time, but ultimately they want to just be able to, you know, like hang out. <laughs> and I think that the, it's, it's less, I guess, about American culture, but more about like the culture in New York and, and how everyone's working towards like this, this success that can be, uh, you know, the end goal could be like money or um, authenticity or prestige. And these girls are kind of like, but why? <laughs> but what is the point of that? Like what, like, why is it also affecting like how you are as a person in terms of like being probably terrible? Like what, like what is their, what is the point to, for them and and I think that they they have to participate it because they need the money they have to they want to go out but m- most of the time they do want to just have dinner and, and uh, eat good food but I think that with the critique is that it's also very like it's not real like a lot of it is is just all of these different hierarchies like that we build in our minds based on like you know, like social status or class or all these things that for them, they kind of are like little snakes that they, they go all over. So, you know, it's, they're borderless in, you know, like actually like country-wise, but also like in terms of like, they move like throughout all these different worlds and they kind of, they do think everyone's, everyone might, they might have like an affinity for some of the characters, but a lot of the times, especially Issa, like kind of thinks it's silly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's like the scene up at um, in the Hamptons that mm-hmm. kind of made my blood boil. To me, that was the one that was most like searing mm-hmm. when it comes to like class issues and the ways mm-hmm. in which people, um, I don't know, build their identities. Mm-hmm. And I feel like at, there's a certain time in life. I mean, I guess it's you know this this early twenties, like, you know, done with schooling usually. And then like out in the world with like very little money and tons of energy (laughs) and like (laughs) physical and like physical resilience. I got to say, uh, Marlo, like reading your book, I felt old. I was like every chapter I was like, (laughs) I got to lie down. I'm exhausted. (laughs) I'm 46. So, I mean, you know, I had my moment with this and I can recall it, you know, at the Mm -hmm. same time in my life, but you know, I just, it, it made me feel my age. I was like, damn, these, I can't keep up. I could never keep up anymore. I'm done. You I know? mean, I'm glad that it made you feel a little exhausted because the whole point is like towards the end, like you do feel tired. You're like, when will summer be over? When will these girls like find like something steady? Like, when is it going to be like finished? <laughs> like, when can they rest? And like, by that time you kind of see, you know, there's that one scene when finally after when Issa returns to New York from being in the Hamptons, like she is in this weird, very sterile, like loft in Soho. And she only can eat like pomegranate seeds, but she's like surrounded in this like huge apartment and she's like taking bubble baths, but like, it's so like, she's so tired and she's so hungry that even like later when she meets up with one of her like longtime friends, he's like, just take the croissant. Just take it, please. <laughs> Save it for later. And, you know, like that was kind of, I think that was kind of um, towards that part. You do feel like you're like, how is this even sustainable? Like, how have they been even living? If you think about like, you know, Issa's coming back from like, she comes to New York from London. So you can kind of imagine what her life was like in London as well, like where she's just kind of, 
you know, hanging out with all these people and having to kind of perform all the time, this kind of like entertain these people. And when she's finally alone, you, you feel like that, that there's this extreme exhaustion. And I think a lot of the time, like the special part about being young is like, you can often recover so quickly. And I did want to capture that in this novel. Cause I know that even now, like years later, like I don't have that same kind of capacity anymore at all. Just wait. <laughs> like You're still young. Just wait. <laughs> Give it a few years. <laughs> and I, you know, I want to say too, that like part of the sweetness and poignance of the book for me is the fact that Issa and Gala were trying so hard to have a, a like a big good time yeah. and to <laughs> to do it up uh, while they're young. Like I had the same kind of I think they have a, like a very acute awareness of the fact that youth is fleeting. Mm-hmm. I had that too. And I think sometimes this gets mischaracterized by certain people or certain elements of the culture where you know, they sort of say, well, you know, young people don't realize how quickly it all goes away. And like, actually, I totally remember realizing it. Yeah. I remember having that conversation when I was young with friends of mine, like, well, we better do it now because it's not going to yeah. be this way forever. And I think about their pursuits and the spirit that moves them. And I think about how difficult it is to make a living, especially when mm-hmm. you're young. There's a great scene in the book where uh, Issa... <laughs> Issa like has this way of talking to uh, to the people in New York who ask like what do you do, which is the worst question. I fucking hate <laughs> that question, and she's just like absolutely nothing. And mm-hmm. I found that extremely winning. I love that answer, and I'm gonna start using it in my own life. But, <laughs> um, but then the the response, which which is even better from the people who asked, was, "Well, wait, are you an intern for a magazine?" <laughs> which is like I think it. In, incredibly sharp uh and observant of how the culture works a lot of the times where you know mm-hmm. people who do nothing or like you know people who intern for magazines and get those kinds of internships are often mm-hmm. children of privilege mm-hmm. who can afford to do nothing you know this mm-hmm. unpaid internship garbage that is pervasive in media culture because there's so mm-hmm. much demand you know so many people want in those doors that they can just take advantage of free labor and of course the only people who can really afford to work for free are people who are subsidized and Mm -hmm. who have money coming in from other angles. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I don't know that captured a lot for me, but I found, (laughs) I found there to be a sweetness to the fact that this world that we live in, which is so fucked up in so many ways. And it seems increasingly so um, Mm. that there are still young people out there who just want to have a good time. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's natural and appropriate. And, I don't know. I felt some sadness. I'm probably projecting all of my own stuff onto your book, but I felt some, some real like affection and I was cheering for them in that way Mm. because you should be able to go out and have fun when you're 21 for God's sakes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that I've really learned about myself through this process is like to really try to resist the urge to, and there's a part in the, there's a part in the novel where they're talking, they're at an art gallery and two of their girlfriends are there who are like, you know, like more established in New York, like one's a model and one's kind of just like an actress. And they're talking about how Issa and Gala are very fresh and like you just want to like burst their bubble. 
And that's that kind of inclination, I think, especially with women as you get older and you see younger women, there's this like real almost like animosity and willingness to be like, I'm going to like, you don't know how it's going to be. It's like it, it, it and it feels very like the, it's this natural urge to like admonish young people and like what I've really felt as I've gotten older and also like, you know, like I like to socialize with all different ages and like and I think that um with doing that and kind of like seeing and being around young people like it reminds me of how I was when I was young but also like it's just like why would you make try and make like that young person's life harder like it's like they truly just want to have a good time and be fun and let them and and why are you trying to like make them feel bad about themselves or shame them or embarrass them like and I Cause you know, like as a, I was an annoying underage party girl. Like I started going out when I was 15, you know, all the older girls tried to like get me kicked out all the time. Me and my friend kicked out and, you know, ban us from certain things. And it was like, uh, it was definitely an interesting experience, but it's taught me to a, like really encourage the young people in my life to be like, you know, like just don't worry about anything, like really just be okay with you know, like doing what you need to do. Like no one's going to hold you to account because you're 21 and you, you know, we're like screaming and dancing on a table. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. At that age, you should be doing that. Exactly. I mean, whenever, if you're not going to, if not, then when, you know, and exactly. uh, I feel more of an inclination to admonish older people. Like <laughs> I listen, I think there is, you know, there is something to the idea that we should value experience and we should celebrate our elders and listen to them because they have valuable experiences that they can draw upon to, you know, educate the rest of us. Mm -hmm. But there's also something to this idea, I think of older people who have been absorbed by the culture and who have been working within the systems, (laughs) many of which are toxic, you know, and not maybe all that great for people or at least most people, you know, you can become blinded by that. And so I have Mm -hmm. some instinct, instinctual trust like when young people speak up i listen because Mm -hmm. i don't think they've been as sullied you know they might not be as wise in some cases but there's a often a purity to their perspective and like Mm -hmm. such a wide openness and a hope and an energy and i don't know it seems it can seem at its best unspoiled and i think it's a mistake to look down one's nose at somebody just because they're young like a lot of times they Mm -hmm. they're the ones who are seeing things clearly and there's also like a, a like an enthusiasm that I think that people find irritating. <laughs> right. Oh, these people are so overjoyed to be alive. Fuck them. <laughs> um, and you know, like there is, I believe there is a line too, like when when um, Issa's getting ready to go out to meet a boy on her on her date, and Gala just says like, "Don't let him make you feel bad." for being enthusiastic because I think that, that, and that's just like a, something that I think about all the time, even still, like that's kind of one of my, what's what, that is one of the, like the passages I return to because you really see how, um, you know, like her dealings with like this particular man, she's really trying to hold her own and, you know, he's obviously not going to let her. He's really trying to like wrestle this, this power dynamic, but she is like, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to leave anyways. I'm going to tell you what I think and then I'm going to have to leave. Like, I can't, I'm just not going to have time for this anymore. And um, 
I don't know. I, I, I have always tried to, and even I tell my friends every day, I'm like, you cannot not say something. <laughs> When you, when it's like, when you're like bubbling over and you need to say something, just say it or else you'll, you'll just regret it. And I hate, I just hate that. So I, I, I knew that for some parts in the novel, when she's on these like different dates and these different situations with men, like either I wanted her to also start, cause she's not being like outwardly cruel or mean. She's really just trying to like stick up for herself and like what she values. And then also kind of like lightly making fun of them and that's like the and that kind of goes back to like that idea of like mischief and and you know like getting away with something and also you know like it was interesting afterwards I realized that like all the a lot of the times with all these men like she's being rebuffed and I think that was something that I felt was interesting because she is often like trying to wrestle control and power from these men who are often older than her but she's like just unsuccessful <laughs> and you'd think that she'd be more successful <laughs> yeah I, I i i can relate to being unsuccessful when trying to uh, <laughs> deal with uh being young and trying to like you know go on dates or get dates yeah. in the first place like i was miserable at that but I, I found that there was something kind of interesting about your choices with regard to isa you touched on this a little bit earlier about how open she is and how open Gala is as well, like that kind of chutzpah conversation that we were having, mm -hmm. because she'll give her phone number out to mm -hmm. people and people. Yeah, I think she gets uh, like taken to task a little bit for that or something, if I'm mm -hmm. recalling correctly. But I like that about her. Like she's mm -hmm. a little bit brash and she mm -hmm. isn't so scared, <laughs> you know, at yeah. least when it comes to, you know, taking chances and meeting people. And I mean, who cares if somebody has your number? Like, what are they really going to do? <laughs> I guess they could over text you, you know? Yeah, no. And I think that like, well, I mean, for my girlfriends, when we were growing up, like the, the best way to get a guy to stop talking to you is to give you, give them your, your number because like they usually will never text you. I don't know. It's like a weird thing, but, um, yeah, like I, I it's interesting because they are open in so many different, so many ways, but it's because in other ways, they're also very meticulously closed off right. in certain ways. So, you know, it's it's this idea of like also like how carefree can you possibly be and what structures do you have to create in order to be carefree and to order to, in order to live your life like that and to also like always have this in your mind because – I think that one of the things that I love about the idea of, um, you know, a, a party girl or whatever is that you're always, you have this like double mindset. You're, you are so excited for the possibility of the evening, but you kind of know in the back of your mind, even if it was, if, it, even if it's not like you thinking it, but you know, like people who are always telling you to be careful to like, you have to like watch your drink. You have to like, you know, like text when you get home, like these kinds of, these kinds of, um, structures that you have to like be mindful of when you go out all the time but then still continually pursuing that lifestyle is you know again like a lot of you have to have a lot of moxie to want to do that and like to be you know courageous and and like to be like oh like well yes of course there's always a possibility that something bad might happen but also something amazing might happen and that's more worth it to me right well and i think the word that comes to mind for me is survival uh mm -hmm. You know, when you're 21 years old and you're not in your home country and you don't have papers to work and you're scraping by and you're trying to like live the high life at the same time, but you're also carrying within you 
deep griefs and sorrows, you know, human sorrows and that sort of stuff. You don't necessarily at that age maybe have the equipment or the inclination to grapple with all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like at cross purposes with being 21. It's too young to have to deal with all that. But yes. I think too, like the economic situation that these young people are in where, you know, like how are you supposed to do it all? Like you can, you, mm-hmm. you have to compartmentalize at a certain point, A, because you're just trying to feed yourself and keep a roof over mm-hmm. your head. But B, you know, if you get, I think, I think I felt within these girls, like a, like there was a closedness, like they, mm-hmm. it was there within them, but they were keeping it at bay mm-hmm. because if it, if it came up, it could easily overwhelm them maybe. Mm-hmm. And it could certainly ruin the vibe. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No. And I think that that read is correct. I think that you have to, I worked for a really long time as a hostess and at like a private members club. And, um, you know, I think that that was an interesting experience for me because it was like, it didn't matter what your, like your life was like at home. Like you could be like having the worst day or you're going through like a breakup or yeah, of course, like you're dealing with grief. Um, but you know, like in order to continue to make money and you know, I, I don't get like a paid sick day. <laughs> um, you know, I have to go in, I used to always have to go into work and then like, it wasn't even like I was pretending, but it was very much like in to be able to perform this sense of like hospitality and like, a, a basic surface of being congenial <laughs> sure, yeah. at all times for like eight hours a day, like kind of, um, it was kind of, it kind of like helped with whatever, because you just have to smile. You, I literally was smiling through it a lot of the time. And, you know, if it was a really bad day, I would go into the bathroom and cry for like two minutes and then I would come back out and like, just continue on. Um, and, you know, that was kind of something that I like, really loved about the women that surrounded me all the time, because we all were like that. We were always like having some sort of situation, always, but we would always continue to doing what we had to do. Um, and not to say that that's like, you know, I would, I'd want the world to be like that, but sometimes, you know, that is just, it's, it's to me like more realistic to how me and my friends have lived. Like we'll be having like a terrible day. Like, um, you know, my friends will be, you know, like crying about something or other. And then like maybe 20 minutes later, we like start laughing about something else. It's, it's like this constant, like, um, movement around your, like how you navigate those kinds of difficult circumstances. Um, I, I guess like what it brings to mind for me, are questions that I have in my own life around like this issue of fun and conviviality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also like the nature of human suffering and how mm-hmm. one is to best contend with his or her own suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's what I mean by that. I, I was much like these characters at that stage of my life. I think most mm-hmm. 21 year olds, I think, are, are, you know, have some degree of this kind of, uh, joie de vivre, but, mm-hmm. uh, it went away, was going to fade it actually relatively quickly for me in my twenties. Like I, you know, by the time I was in my mid twenties, I was sort of past it. And even to this day, 
I wrestle with this idea of like austerity versus indulgence (laughs) Mm. in the sense that like, you know, when I was going out, I'm only going to speak for myself, you know, like I was going out and drinking as a young person or whatever, doing drugs and uh, having, you know, going out to parties and all that kind of that, that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So much of it I now see in retrospect was at least to some degree, me and my friends running away from our own suffering and trying to anesthetize, Mm -hmm. trying to anesthetize it with alcohol in particular, but sometimes with other things. And I think that, uh, you can quickly, I feel like, I guess I'm, I just want to be cool. I feel like I can be a, sound like a <laughs> I can sound like a scold or like a party pooper <laughs> to be like, you know what? That's only going to make you, it's not going to make it better. Mm-hmm. Like there's a time and a place I think for that kind of just like devil may care thing. It's a, it's a function of youth, right? I think there's, mm-hmm. I think there's something appropriate about it, but I just think that the returns are diminishing as one gets mm. older and the more parties you go to, right? You go through the ritual of going out in search of that like magical night and it only happens mm-hmm. once in a while. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps you coming back for more. But mm-hmm. if you wake up hungover enough times, eventually you're like, you know what? This is a lot of work. I'm getting the flu. Mm. I'm getting the flu every time I go out. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, do you know what I'm saying? You know that feeling of kind of like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I certainly remember feeling that way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that as I've gotten older, I I really do. I think of the philosophies of this lifestyle. And I kind of think that like, it doesn't actually matter if at the end of the day, like you're still like going out like a million times, like uh, a week or something. Like I think it's mo- mainly about the philosophy of saying yes to things and, and opening yourself up to possibility and being able to... Um, truly just like um have that I guess like seizing of your life and like really being like able to to navigate it on your own terms and you know I always say this it's not necessarily that you need to want to do the same things as these girls I think it's that that is what they find gives them joy and that's like what they find you know like that's they like to they like beautiful things they like to you know like uh surround themselves and curate their life in that way but i would hope that readers would be more inclined to find out what that is for themselves like you know i don't think that you need to do all the same things as they do but i think that it's nice to understand like their relationship to pleasure and beauty and joy um and then like you know, finding out what that would be for you. Yeah. I guess I'm like so self-conscious that the whole time I was just like, I was like, these girls would hate me. They would think (laughs) I'm just like a frumpy old man in my garage in a t-shirt. I don't care about fashion or like, you know, it's, it's complicated because when you say you don't care, that is your expression of how you care. You know, like I've been down these roads before, but like, I don't know. Like I'm, I wear a t-shirt and shorts. I mean, sweatpants like i'm like really really not (laughs) gonna be somebody who impresses anyone with his clothing (laughs) um and so i was like man you know maybe i'm just like anadonic or i'm not i'm not enough fun you know (laughs) i want to be a fun person but i also don't want to like feel like i've got to go poison myself i'm too old to go poison myself and Mm -hmm, get a headache mm -hmm, i I need my mm -hmm. sleep and i've got kids like 
trust me, I don't know if you're ever going to have kids, but if you do, like that changes things. <laughs> like you think you've been hung over, you I've think, yeah, that. you think you've been hung over until you're like changing a diaper at four in the morning with like a pounding headache. Like it's that, that's the end. <laughs> I promise you. But I do feel like these girls all definitely understand that, like the fleetingness of these experiences. And I think that even later on, when they're talking about how sometimes like if they, you know, like Gala has this weird situation where one of the girls that she knows kind of like steals her some of her things. And it's this kind of like this feeling that they're very like these things make them happy. But then also when they're gone, it's not it's not so bad. It's not so bad to them because they they, they understand that things are fleeting if they lose something or or if they can't. um you know, or they can't like retrieve this what particular thing back. It's not that um, they're like materialistic. It's really just that fact that like they like to be around things that they they enjoy. Um, well, and I want to yeah. say too, <laughs> neither of these girls is to the manner born. You know, so I think you say this in the book that you know when you don't necessarily come from like a station of super high privilege. Um, your relationship to stuff and to beauty and to glamour and to material mm -hmm. stuff is different. And there's maybe mm -hmm. more of a hunger and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of their whole thing about like food. <laughs> They're like, I would eat this until it made me sick. Like that's kind of their, <laughs> that's kind of their weird thing. And, and, you know, I definitely remember being like that when I was younger as well, like where you're like, I wish I could eat like, I don't know, like millions of these. What was like something that I really loved? I don't know. It, it, it's like some sort of like um, situation where you want to like indulge sometimes because you, you've been away from it for so long. If you almost have this inclination to binge on it when you, you have it in that moment. And then it's obviously to make you feel sick. But like luck, like I feel like there's a fear that you'll never get it again. Yeah, And that was kind of like, even for me, like when I was um, really broke, <laughs> I'd be so mad if I remembered like earlier, like, or like the, like yesterday or something, if I hadn't like finished my dinner or something, I'd be like, oh, that's so annoying. And like what it like, it makes no sense because actually like in that moment, if you were, didn't finish your whatever, it's because you were too full. And if you ate all of it, you'd feel sick. But because the next day that you didn't have it anymore, you're like, oh, I should have just done that. Like it's, it's just an odd, like literal hunger that, you know, I think that when you when you're in that kind of precarious situation, you you are it's you're more prone to to, you know, going overboard with it. Sure. Yeah. It's like people well, it's like and it's like, you know, people who live through the Great Depression or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, like people talking about their grandparents who lived through the Great Depression and how they like saved everything. And mm -hmm. I had a grandfather like that, like his garage, like the garage I just remember was packed. Like he still had my dad's mm -hmm. childhood bike, mm -hmm. like 60 years after the fact or whatever it was, mm -hmm. and, or 50 years, you know. And um, I think that when you've been in a state of deprivation or you've been like really dead ass broke and hungry, Mm -hmm. It inevitably changes your orientation and vice versa. Like if you've never known true want or desperation, mm -hmm. it's easy to have blind spots and it's easy to sort of be cynical about it all. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's, I think like it, this is very much the case in LA. I don't know if it's the case in Toronto or New York. It's certainly not the case. I don't think in Paris, but in LA, it's kind of a status symbol to not give a fuck. 
Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, maybe that's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, you know, you go out to a nice restaurant and there's like some, you know, actor or movie producer or whatever, who's just like wearing a t-shirt even, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, he doesn't have like, it's like, oh, Seth Rogen. He's like high as shit. And he's just in his t-shirt and his sunglasses indoors. And he's like rich enough where he doesn't have to give a fuck. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I always have an idea of like an off duty actor is always in a baseball cap and like a long wool coat and sneakers. Like that's kind of the off duty actor look in New York, uh, in New York, but still it's like, I think it transfers anyways. Um, and no, I, I, I mean, it's hard to say, but it's I, in France, I think it's definitely like a certain type of like effortlessness, but obviously that always like comes together as very chic. I can imagine how in LA it's like, well, I, it, I think it's like this whole idea that like they're, they're too busy for that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Like they're too busy, <laughs> they're too busy to to be put together or something <laughs> that yeah that and like they don't answer to anybody i don't have mm-hmm. to dress up like think about adam sandler like he's walking around just like fuck you i'm wearing basketball shorts and a jersey and you know he's on the red carpet <laughs> you know like yeah like it's like a statement of personal control and just like also like maybe like a fuck you to cultural expectations but like this is how i am like maybe here I'm wearing a t-shirt because most people are. Mm. When I go to New York, I dress up more. When mm-hmm. I've been in Paris, I'm like, oh shit, I better put on some nice clothes. Cause like <laughs> you, you go out in Paris looking like this and it's like a faux pas, right? I mean, like I, I yeah, feel it. Like you're so American. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I Here's the thing about me, Marlo. I just want to blend. I just want to blend. <laughs> okay. It's too much stress, you know, for me. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's funny because I think about like the people who want to stand out because um, I have, you know, different, there's different, I feel like I have a lot of friends who they, they stand out for different reasons. And sometimes it's like a personal expression of like what they find um, beautiful or the colors or whatever. Like it's fun. It's a it's kind of, they're expressing how they are and who they are. Um, and then another is they get so dressed up, but it's like an, it's an armor to like face the world with and that's such an interesting it's so interesting on either side like I think I'm the former but I do know like some people who who wear like the most ostentatious things that are really they're preparing the world to 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 face the world in a way where they they're it's a layer between them and everyone else um see I'm a courageous human being out there in my (laughs) t-shirt just unadorned facing the scary world without any kind of shield. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, you know, I can, I'm, a, I'm of a million minds on everything. That's just how I'm wired. And so like mm-hmm. part of me, I'm finally, like, I'm like, this is all, this is truly how I've always been. I never, mm-hmm. I just like to be comfortable. Like that's really the metric that I'm measuring everything by. I want to be physically comfortable and like mm-hmm. even blue jeans now, or it's too much after COVID I'm done. I'm done with blue jeans. It feels like burlap to me. I need like an elastic waistband and very soft like material. (laughs) Um, But I also can scold myself and be like, you know what? You should have a better sense of fashion and like enjoyment, you know, quit being such Mm -hmm. a fucking uh, like sour curmudgeon about it all. (laughs) It's fun to look nice. (laughs) It is fun. I think I, 
I like the idea. I think that was the biggest problem for me, like in the pandemic, for sure, is that all of a sudden, like I didn't, I, I literally started just dressing up at home because I needed a sense of occasion or else I would literally like lose it. I couldn't, I couldn't like not dress up in a certain way because then you start to like lose all these like ideas of who you are kind of because you just like haven't seen yourself in the in how you used to just face the world anyways um and you know I had I have a lot of clothes obviously I'm sure that people would know that about me um and I needed to get them on the rotation or else it would just be like such a it'd be so um a waste really well yeah what is a party I mean a party girl if we're going to use that term uh, mm-hmm. the pandemic is not good for party girls. No. <laughs> it's like, you know, Terrible. it's like an, it's like an enforced, re- it's like an enforced hiatus, right? Or enforced retirement mm-hmm. almost. You, what are you going to do? You got to like, mm-hmm. z- you know, zoom party girls, just not the same. <laughs> I know, but you know, I did that too for like the very beginnings. My friends started doing a, a zoom event. And then I was like one of the, a founding guest. <laughs> Some, and then it became like a huge thing. And then, you know, they were getting, they were getting like real, real musicians on there. Really? It was really weird. Yeah. Well, but really you know, fun. people got creative. <laughs> I, I did, I did like, two, I mean, this is the weirdest, this is going to sound strange, but like I did like one or two Zooms the whole pandemic. <laughs> mm. um, I, I can't do that. Like, especially when there's too many people. Mm-hmm. It gets to be, I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. This isn't, you know, yeah. people's, people are cross talking. I can't even keep up, but. Mm-hmm. There, there was one I think where I was like, oh, you know what? It was really nice to talk to everybody, and it was fun to have a laugh. And I kind of like was like, oh, I missed that. But I am temperamentally suited to spending a lot of time alone, <laughs> um, to the degree where it's almost like uh, embarrassing. I was like, this is fine. I'm totally fine with this. Like this pandemic mm-hmm. is, this is right up my alley. But that's also a statement of privilege. I must flag that. I know there are people at home <laughs> keeping score, but you know what I mean? Like I'm a writerly yeah, temperament. Course. I have like a, a monkish tendency, uh, tendency to mm-hmm. me. So, uh, I, I also think I'm at a stage of life where, you know, going out and being social isn't maybe as uh, important, but mm. one of the things I want to talk to you about, uh, is I want to drill down into terminology and like language choice a little bit more. Okay. Uh, particularly around party girl, you're sort of inviting people to not take it, take you seriously or take mm-hmm. the character seriously. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, I feel like it's kind of like throwing down the gauntlet a little bit or taking back a term that could be used as a pejorative um, and owning it. And mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting and charming choice because I mean, I'm going to do a bad job of remembering literary history, but I feel like these kinds of stories of like young people going out, getting fucked up and having fun. This has been done many times by young men Mm -hmm. without any kind of critique, without too many critiques about, you know, them needing to be more serious or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're turning it on its head. And this is a female story. And you're like open, like, yeah, I'm a party girl. I like to go out and party. (laughs) <laughs> so what? I just like that it's not, there's no apology in it. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I think, you know, I'm moving away now from language choice, but to other kinds of creative choices where there are scenes where men behave badly. And there mm-hmm. are, like we talked about it earlier, you know, where Issa's sort of uh, grappling with this guy 
not literally, but you know what I'm saying, like psychologically, like mm-hmm. psycho-spiritually. Um, <laughs> they're kind of, uh, you know, they're kind of circling one another and trying to communicate and it's not necessarily mm-hmm. going great. So it's not like men are portrayed inaccurately or in a way that felt untrue to life. But again, and this speaks to what we were talking about earlier with regard to the market timing and how Mm-hmm. publishing was maybe wanting there to be more lessons or something in the mm-hmm. book. I didn't also feel, I did not feel in reading it in a way that felt refreshing to me, a lot of overt gender politics. Um, mm. It's in there and it felt real, but it wasn't like a polemic. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and also like, I don't know. I just, I, I find, I read a lot of books. I find that there are a lot of men behaving badly characters and stories out there and it's appropriate but you took an angle that i'm not seeing often which is that it wasn't as maybe the battle lines weren't as stark or something do you see what i'm getting at i don't know yeah okay no i i do know what you mean i think that basically they behave badly but i don't think that that's like you have they're it they do anything to like demonize them. I think it's just like an overall, um, like they, they kind of are all in a way, especially the romantic characters for the, the men who Issa has like encounters with that way. They kind of, it's like a revolving door. Right. And they have, they all have like their, their little, um, you know, tricks and they have their own little like problems but none of them are like super distinctive because I think that um I would prefer to not have the story be about finding you know like any sort of answer or romantic relationship and I don't think um that was really interesting to me I think it was more to me about like how men are often when especially in the novel like they're acting a certain way that they have been able to get away with themselves like over and over again so I think that the whole idea is that when you kind of put Issa in that situation she's challenging like why and how they've gotten away with that for so long um I'm more interested in 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 kind of having the girls be like they're testing New York, like it's not the other way around. And I think that that's much more um, true to life, I think. But also in terms of, I honestly feel like they, the men are, they're doing something that their position has allowed them to do again. And it's up to Issa to figure out how she wants to play it. And I think that that was kind of the main thing that I wanted to get across that she's always like, has this kind of, she's has her own strategy going on always. And you also don't know a hundred percent what exactly has happened because you're so reliant on her telling, like hoping you're hoping that she's telling you all the, all the things, all the details, but it's often that she's probably not. And that happens one so that you kind of realize that there's been a there's been a bizarre um blip in the story when when she finally does tell gala that she did hook up with an earlier character benjamin elvis yeah. from the <laughs> earlier in the book <laughs> and you're like 
wait, what? Like, when did this happen? And it's because she's just not disclosing everything all the time. So I think that, like, with the... Because the thing is, I think especially what's happening here, it's it's less to do... Like, men are often the the conduit for, like, they're like a meal ticket a lot of the time. So she knows that she has to, like, tolerate them to a certain extent. And she will give them, like, a slap on the wrist if they're being, you know, out of line in a certain way. But ultimately they are also, like, buying her dinner and giving her gifts and doing these little things and also, like, taking her to the Hamptons and doing all these things. Like, she understands, like, a certain amount of... um the role that she does play. But again, like, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm that interested in, in creating that kind of, that kind of dynamic where it's, where like, you know, that this person is like a bad person. I think it's, it's much, much more complex. And, and like, that's definitely in the character of Coop, which isn't, you know, Coop is like a odd character because you're kind of like, do I kind of feel bad for him? Cause he, he's this, you know, like he's a British aristocrat, but like also like, is kind of maybe broke or he's like trying to like keep up a little bit with his like other rich friends. And he's, he's sometimes a good character like where you're like, Oh, like he's kind of like being, he kind of understands Issa and will let her be who, how she wants to be in certain situations. But then also you're like, why are you acting like that? Like you're, you're being very, uh, you know, like projecting a lot onto her into a certain way that she feels like so uncomfortable and that she has to act a certain way, especially in the Hamptons. Um, You know, I wanted to complicate that a little bit because I do think that even for me, the way that I know people is that I may not know how someone's going to be in like five years from now, you know, like, and there's always that possibility for someone to change behavior depending on what they've experienced. And so I've never been one to like really be like, this person's the villain, obviously. Like, I think everyone's a bit of a villain all the time. So um, I, I just think that that's a more that's more true. I would agree. I would agree. And, <laughs> but I also have to, you know, these characters, and I feel like there's probably some of this in you in you too, are savvy and street smart mm-hmm. and tough to a degree that somebody like Coop probably isn't because mm-hmm. of his cushy, privileged station. You know, when you mm-hmm. come up without much money and you're 21 and scraping by just to eat and you're accustomed to that kind of hustle, it breeds a certain toughness and it, and to make it at all requires a kind of uh, native intelligence, you know, street smarts. Mm-hmm. So my question for you, like on a personal level, as somebody who's kind of like lived this lifestyle and, you know, mm-hmm. documented this part of her youth in a novel to some extent, and has been, you know, you were sneaking into parties when you were 15. So this mm-hmm. has been going on for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is, is that first of all, I have to imagine you have borne witness to a lot of bad male behavior mm-hmm. um, in these kinds of situations and mixing with these kinds of people. Like, uh, you know, like how, how have you navigated it without becoming embittered? <laughs> this is assuming you're not terribly <laughs> embittered. But also, like, have you ever been in situations where it got like dangerous or like excessively ugly or dumb do you know what i'm saying like Mm. i mean yeah i think that also when i was younger i had a really particular type of way of thinking about these things and 
Like I honestly felt like sometimes men were like in a, like they, like especially if they were like badly behaving or like they were kind of like really pushing a certain type of boundary um, that later on I, I would realize it would be like more serious. Um, I honestly thought that they, they were kind of like an annoying fly. <laughs> like They were just like bothering me and it was like so obnoxious. Um, and so like I think that like you know, as I've gotten older, I understand that like certain things were definitely not okay. And, you know, like, but I think that at the time I was really just like, listen, like, just like, ugh, like, I just can't right now with this. Like, this is too much. And you kind of just like dash away. Like it's, it's this weird thing. And, and, you know, like, it's hard to like protect yourself from that in a lot of different situations, but you, Again, like you kind of just have this resiliency that kind of like it kind of does like roll off your back in a lot of ways and where you don't like really pause to think about it or like to to really ponder about what's happening. Um, and, you know, like I think even in the past like five years or so, I experienced a lot of like it was it's very weird. Like I had a lot of like instances at like altercations at like bars and stuff with men where like they were just really being so rude. Like I don't even like saying crazy things to me or like, like, and randomly. And, you know, I would always at that moment, I would be like so shocked by it. Cause I was like, like bemused almost. I'm like, what is this? Like, this is actually like it, like insane thing to say to someone. Um, and like later on, what happened is that I would I would play it out in my head over and over. I would get more and more mad, but so late, <laughs> like really late in the game, like not immediately, like where I couldn't like react properly. Like I had to have someone else kind of tell me that it was wrong and then I would react. Um, but, you know, and now I think that when those things have happened, um, the best thing about getting older is that now I really don't mince <laughs> my words I'm like very like I'm very like you know I I'm cutting right when it happens and I think that's been an improvement for me but yeah like I think that also it's it's kind of it's been an interesting journey and I'm so thankful like that nothing like too bad has happened to me and I'm always like kind of shocked about it but um you know I always say to my friends that like I, in any situation that I'm in, like, I always act like how I would usually act. (laughs) So I feel like a lot of the times, even in like my most incapacitated state, um, I usually like really, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of like, I, I say what I need to say and that's usually enough. Sometimes my friends have to pull me away to, to another location, but I, I, you know, I no longer, have that kind of um, delayed reaction that I used to but again I it's because when I was younger like these things were happening all the time like lots of things were happening all the time where you were just kind of like oh it's not a big deal like it's just I have to get a drink now <laughs> right, like, right. I, again I think there's something really true to life about the book and the way you portray it and what you leave out mm-hmm. because I don't think when I was 21 certainly I was thinking deeply in the moment 
about the politics of a particular exchange. <laughs> you yeah, know, what's true to life is it happens like the next day, like when you have a hangover and your friend was like, that was really weird when that guy, you know, picked you up and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, that's when you start, you know, you sort it out. That feels truer to life to me. I mean, I, okay. I actually just remembered this one time that I was in New York and me and my friend were out with just a group of people. And I swear it was, it was so bizarre. Like th these two guys just were sitting with us and, you know, for some reason, the, almost like at the same time, like this guy, like kind of like, like lifted me over and just kind of like, like lightly groped. I don't know, whatever. But, but it was so, then I was like, I went to the bouncers and I was like, like yelling my head off. I was like, da -da -da -da, like this man is disgusting. I hate him. Like get him out of here. Da -da. And they were like, well, like, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to like kick him out? Like, what do you want us to do? I was like, I remember this so clearly because it was, I was with my friend. We, we talk about the story a lot. And I remember being like, well, he would still exist in the world. So I don't really know. And then, yeah. And then afterwards I just like went to a different part of the bar and then I just ordered a drink. So that was just... <laughs> That's one way of dealing with it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's honestly like that. Yeah. It was. A, the thing is that me and my friend think about this night and we laugh upon recollection because it was so absurd. It was so absurd. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, <laughs> different ways of dealing with things. And also there's yeah. different, there, you know, you said it earlier, there's different degrees of infraction and luckily mm -hmm. nothing truly terrible happened mm -hmm. i think you know it i feel like you have to have an angel on your shoulder to a certain extent to get through your 20s unscathed at all mm. um especially if you're going out and uh partying and doing all that kind of stuff i think back to my own 20s and like you know i just feel like relief like wow i can't believe i made it through <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, there were many instances where, you know, they, you put yourself in those situations. There's always the possibility that something um, could happen. Untoward. Untoward yeah. or just like <laughs> reckless and dumb. You know what I'm saying? Accidents yeah. could happen, those kinds of things. But I want to ask you about the composition of your book because the way that it's structured is it's, it's diaristic, but it didn't really read that way to me. Like it's structured Ooh. over the course of this summer and – the chapters are sort of like nominally diary entries, but they don't read like a diary in the traditional way that I'm thinking of it. I hope that sounds fair. And the question I have for you is, are you a person who keeps a diary and were you drawing upon actual diaries to write this book? <laughs> um, so I used to keep a diary when I was a teenager, but again, it was definitely like more of a diary. Like I def I would write, like I went here, I went there, I saw this person, I went did this. Like this is kind of the style that I was in at that time. Um, but no, I think for me, like the, the decision to do a diary was, was mostly kind of inspired by Anita Lose's book, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Like I liked the idea as well as that, you know, again, and when we talk about like trying to place yourself within a lineage, it's, it's like the idea of a diary is like the final say, right? So I think that for me, what was important was that the that Issa could create an artifact of her existence and be like, this is the last word on it. Like I get the final word. Um, and, you know, I think that that was kind of a, another part of the, and layer to the work was because 
afterwards, obviously, like, you kind of realize that maybe, like, the book that you're reading is the diary (laughs) and, you know, kind of more, like, meta way, I guess. Um, And, yeah, like, I get, I think that the, the, you know, there was talk also, like, early in the pitching process that, like, they were like, why can't you just change it to just, like, normal first person? And I just think that, like, that would have been a mistake because, the whole thing too is that like it's an odd thing for a pe- for a person right now like kind of in like a contemporary time frame to be keeping a diary <laughs> like it's an odd thing it's an odd inclination for someone to be like trying to do and trying to document um and i want i definitely think that that was kind of a so much of a part of who isa is is that she is very strict in her narrative and her control on on the story like she wants to have that um control in the text so it could only ever really work in a diary for me like that was because i want i definitely just wanted them to be able to have like a an artifact and like a and you know this it kind of goes back to like what does the where does the power lie and in this case, it is in Issa's diary. It, it also is a structuring device. I mean, this is a book about a summer, you know, like you, mm-hmm. you definitely feel, you know, you feel like you're working towards September. I felt like that from early, early on, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so I think it just functions on that level as well. I always say that it's like when you're trying to write a story, you have to have like some idea of the vessel that you're in. You know, and if you know, Mm. if there's like a finite amount of time that you're working with, it's easier to know what you're writing towards, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Um, So now you're what? Are you in your 30s yet? Or are you not even? I'm 29. I'm turning 30 in a month. So What are you going to do? Is this like, have you retired as a party girl? Are you still (laughs) operational? What's happening? Um, I mean... I kind of, I'm much more like a wine bar person now, but I do terrorize my local wine bars. Like that's something I'm known to do in my neighborhood. Like it's um, like even as recently as like Tuesday. (laughs) Um, I've been trying to think of what I'm actually going to do for my birthday party because I feel like that's a lot of pressure for me. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of enjoying in... it, this whole situation is so new to me, to be honest, like this whole, like, I like to say like authoress situation. So I'm kind of adjusting to that. Um, it's funny. Cause you had said earlier that you have a writerly disposition. Like I absolutely do not. So <laughs> I was going to say, you're like so extroverted. It seems to me. And like, uh, you know, you probably yeah. can't stand to be like locked away for too long. You like to go out. Yeah, and it doesn't even matter like to, like what kind of going out. I tend to like go out pretty often. Just I, you know, I I'm really I'm a real neighborhood girl, so I like talk to everyone and I'm really chatty and I everyone knows what's going on in my business. Like <laughs> the whole neighborhood knows who like what I went on a date like 2 weeks ago, like what was with that? Like everyone knows. Um yeah, I just I'm trying to get used to this like this kind of situation where I'm like going to, you know, be writing more (laughs) and at home and at my desk, it's really hard for me to just get used to it. And I know that I should have done the pen, like done the pandemic in that way where I like spent more time 
writing that I just couldn't. It was too difficult. It was too much of an adjustment. Um, So yeah, I'm kind of writing. I'm working on like some more like screenwriting stuff right now. Like I'll say like a little romantic comedy thing. We'll see. But (laughs) feature feature film that you're going to write and direct. Is that the idea? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to. I'm, I'm again, like, so tired all the time. I don't want to direct something. Um, I, yeah, we'll see. I, I kind of like to keep things a little close to my chest in certain ways. But also, like, I, I'm kind of spontaneous in terms of, like, what projects I like to do and what I want to work on. Like, the novel was such a long project in my mind, obviously it was a long project that took way too long, but then like other things I'll want to do, like uh, maybe like a short film or like collaborate on something else. And, um, you know, I, I like to, sometimes I like to paint. I don't know. It's just, it's always all over the place for me. Again, I always, I kind of am a little busy bee. I like to like hop around a little bit. That's all right. But I think, you know, (laughs) the thing about writing books though, especially like a, a novel, something long form, is that there's no bargaining with it. Like it just requires such like intense focus over the long haul. You know what I'm saying? Unless you have like an amphetamine thing and you can figure out how to write it quickly. (laughs) Yeah. No, no. I really, to be honest, like my whole writing process is so, I just, I could never be like a full-time freelance writer. Like I think that's so difficult because for me, like I really need to be connected with the subject and I need to be like, kind of um, worked into a frenzy to even write like some of my essays that I've done, like kind of the criticism and stuff like that. Like I need to be like in a frenzy, something that I've been thinking about and talking about and annoying my friends about for like months over dinner. Like they just are sick of hearing about it. Um, And that's kind of my process. So it's hard to do that on a more regular basis when you're not also not like living in the world. And so much about like my writing is the fact that I do live in the world all the time and pretty fully in the world um and that requires so much time because you know sitting down and writing is one thing but like I kind of have to make the decision all the time whether I'm gonna like go and do something or I'm gonna like the next morning or next day I'm gonna like sit at my desk for maybe three to four hours I guess for longer than I don't think it's healthy to write for more than I mean I guess if (laughs) if you're having a really good day but I honestly think it's normal for four four hours five tops to be like the longest Mm -hmm. most people can be effective writing in a day like you sort of run out you know you run out of fuel and then you got to let it go for the day and then get back Mm -hmm. at it the next day but I envy your social abilities I envy (laughs) your youth and your uh you know, convivial, uh, spirit. I think it's awesome. And this is an, this is an unexpected book. I'm happy that it got published and I'm happy that, you know, you and your agent sort of saw it through because it tells a bit of a different kind of story. And Mm. it's like an unapologetic celebration of youth and fun in ways that I found refreshing in my, like I I keep saying, in like my curmudgeonly middle age (laughs) and my, like austere leanings or whatever. It was like, yeah, like go out and dance or something, you know, like have some <laughs> drinks and don't apologize. Um, so I know you're saying you're working on films. Is there any kind of book in the works? I always ask my guests if they've got another book, even if it's just in like the nascent idea stage. Uh, is there something cooking? Uh, 
Um, there's always something, you know, there's a lot of material for, to pull from at this point. Um, yeah, I, I do have some ideas. I wouldn't say just yet, just cause I feel like it's not fully cooked, but, um, you know, it's, it also is something that like I need to, I feel like still being under the happy hour, like situation it's difficult sometimes to like be moving on to a new project so I think that um I'm gonna wait a little bit for this little this I don't even know what to call it like this section of of time to finish and then um I feel like I'd be like a little bit more like fresh and uh able to really think with like a cleaner slate I get it I'm now thinking to myself, like, maybe you could write a book called Last Call, right? If we're going to keep on this theme. <laughs> uh, as I, has anyone made that joke to you before? I guess it's No. Got, oh, really? <laughs> I think that could be it right there. Last Call is kind Last of funny. Last Call. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed talking with you, and I enjoyed your book. I uh, won't pressure you anymore to tell me what you're going to do next. I think you should enjoy this moment. And I know that, <laughs> like, promoting a book, you know, that's its own job in a way. And... Oh, Especially, yeah. this has been going on for a while for you because you published mm -hmm. in Canada and then you published in the States now. So I just want to apologize for making you talk about yourself and your book again. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because my friends are like, I've never seen you like this. Like you're so, like when we go out, they're like, you just like never want to say anything anymore. Like not that I'm like being more quiet, but it's just like a little bit more reserved. But because it's like I, I've, I'm doing so much of these things that it's, it's nice, but it's also a weird adjustment in my personal life that I think a lot of people don't really think of is like all of a sudden, like people are like looking for you. Like, <laughs> like I've gotten recognized before and it's, that's like a weird thing too. Right. And like you, also dating is difficult because people recognize you and they're like, they can just Google you and be like, I know her whole life story, which right. is a weird thing. That's a weird adjustment. Um, and, you know, I have been coming to terms with that the past few months and, and, and I've had to explain to people like what's interesting about it is that the more people like know you, like the more it's like so restrictive, especially my kind of life. I can't just go like freewheeling around like normal because now it's like, oh, that girl, <laughs> that girl, that author girl marlo she was there and she was being like blah 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 <laughs> that notorious party girl marlo yeah, granados like, oh my god i can't go i can't you know do my uh normal terrorizing as i would usually do um but yeah i think i think i'm just i'm adjusting in a certain way that is you know it's ex it was i when i was in new york doing like the majority of that kind of like the events and that kind of thing i was actually like so I was like in the daytime when I had nothing on I was like tucked so tightly in my duvet and like blasting the AC and like listening to like a soothing like musical playlist because I was just like it was like I was like incubating or something like like charging my battery or something I get it I get it that's like my normal mode right there I'm kind <laughs> I don't know how you do it. It's very weird. It's, it's like a, difficult. Like molting. Is molting a word? Isn't that like what butterflies yeah. do? Yeah. Yeah. So you've gotten good, like you've done good publicity for this book, like the New York Magazine feature. 
Um, so funny. <laughs> how did that happen? I'm, you know, I'm always curious how this happens. I have a book coming out, so now I'm especially curious. I'm like, how do you get these features? Like, how does this stuff happen? Did somebody come to you or? You know, it's, it's funny because a lot of my friends who aren't writers, they were like, so does every writer get that? And I was like, no. <laughs> right. Literally, no. Because they were, and I have like some friends who are like really established writers. They were like, you had a full a photo of like a full page of you. Like it was a full photo of you, like full bleed. And I was like, I know, I don't really understand. And, you know, I think it's interesting because it's like, obviously like I didn't, it's not like Verso has that much pull in terms of like, like threatening down, like knocking on people's doors and like, if you don't feature her, we're going <laughs> to do something. Um, no, I don't know. It just kind of like happened, I guess. Like, I guess it was like suggested in terms of the fall preview and it just kind of like went from there. I had known that I had known like about some of the press ahead of time, but I didn't know like to what extent it would be like even the New York Times review. I thought it was going to be like, like maybe like a paragraph. So, I mean, it's all been like a nice surprise, but it also feels really funny because like if you obviously you're in New York and you're kind of like going out and stuff and meeting people. Like, I feel like a lot of people know about like, Oh, like I feel like I went out and people would be like, Oh, I know like who's doing that thing on you for like this publication. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But like, they wouldn't tell me or like, or like people wouldn't, um, people wouldn't want to journalists wouldn't want to talk to me because they would be like covering me later or something, but I wouldn't have known that. Isn't that weird? Like, yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, that's part <laughs> of it too. Integrity, I guess. I think there's something, there's some, there's some like magical fairy dust to this. You know, it's like you talk about market timing. <laughs> Listen, we're at the tail end of a, hopefully the tail end or in like hopefully the last yeah. quarter of a pandemic that has kept us all cooped up for two years. Mm-hmm. And, you are a, you're a young, attractive writer who has written a book about going out and having fun and being young and attractive and unapologetic about glamour and all this kind of stuff. Like people are ready for that. It's like, yes, let's have a drink and yeah. you know, have some fun. So. Maybe that's part I, of it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that that is, is one of the factors. I am hoping that like, it's interesting because people are like, so funny and, and uh, there's like this idea of like scarcity right like it's like oh like this it, this can't just be like the party girl because there's not enough drugs or blah, blah 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 whatever i'm like if this is like the if i can have this book out and it be like influence other people to like be more o- of their publishers to be more open to publishing like something like this like i'm i'm so happy like that's like i don't care i, I would love there to be like thousands of party girl books <laughs> like there should be um so i mean yeah, I, I I guess my whole thing is that like I feel so lucky for all of this to have happened had happened and, and but also like, you know, like there's a certain sense of me being a little bit like like I also think it's like funny because obviously the book it's just like in another universe, like my book was like dusting away. Like so it's just it's just like a it's like a little it's had its own little narrative of like yeah, again, like that vindication. I was going to say, it's a triumph. (laughs) You were right. You were right. So we will end where we began, where we were talking about, you know, a struggle with a manuscript to find a home and 
you know, the way that publishing and media culture and Hollywood mm-hmm. for sure, they make all of these bullshit designations about what's mm-hmm. hot right now. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this in Los Angeles about like, nobody's buying such and such kind of show right now because the only thing people want, it's like, what are you talking about? As if you yeah. know what everybody wants. Like, it's just, you know, it's uh like lemmings, you know, they all just like, there's like this group think that I think is really silly and, mm. um, but I guess sometimes you got to deal with it and wait it out. And now you can sort of uh, do a victory dance and say, like, everybody, <laughs> everybody wants party girl books, dumbass. <laughs> Just read New York Magazine. You'll find out about it. <laughs> but kudos to you for sticking it out. Kudos to your agent. And I wish you luck uh, at the wine bars in your neighborhood. I wish you luck on whatever project manifests for you next. And I appreciate the time. Thanks so much. This is so nice. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is Marlo Granados. Her novel, her debut novel, is called Happy Hour, and it is available from Verso Books here in the United States. You can find Marlo on the internet at marlogranados.com, and she is on Instagram and Twitter. I believe in both locations her handle is at Marlo Tatiana. Once again, the book is called Happy Hour. Go get your copy right away. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The whole archive is there for the taking. Support the show for as little as $1 a month. Tip your server if you feel inspired. If you have something to say to me, if you want to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at otherppl or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. The show's official website is otherppl.com. I should mention, too, that I do not run the social media accounts for the show. That duty belongs to my social media director, Joseph Grantham. But uh, if you message the social media accounts he will pass along messages generally speaking this podcast has its own official app and i just want to say for the record that if you are experiencing glitchiness with the app i apologize it has to do with apple apple has changed its terms of service and i had to sign up for this whole new thing in order to have the app you know available via apple And so I have a tech person working on sorting out the glitches. If those glitches persist for you, just bear with us. It's Apple. And we'll get it situated. Soon. What else? I can't even remember. There's a lot of episodes coming up. I've been doing a lot of interviews. Reading a lot of books. Does anybody have a joint?